Chapter 25 From time to time, as I neared my 65th birthday, I'd been approached by several big companies who seemed to think I was ready for retirement at the conventional age. All made enticing offers to buy me out, and I was willing to listen. I am in the business of selling machines, and to me, a factory is just a complete machine to turn out finished products like a turret lathe is a complete machine to turn out finished parts. What the bidding companies had in mind, all of them being diversification conscious, was to add a going, earth-moving business to their industrial setups. What I had in mind, I left up to my lord. If he wanted me to sell and devote the capital through the foundation he owned 90% of the business, and all my time to his work, I was ready. If he wanted me to build a new factory and continue representing him as a businessman, I was ready for that, too. The best offer came from Westinghouse Air Brake Company, a nice round $50 million for everything with not one of my men to lose his job. It sounded fine until the efficiency experts and market analysts and production flow engineers got going. Then it turned out that with its existing facilities, Westinghouse Air Brake could do without my Vicksburg and Longview plants and steel mill. The offer was reduced to $31 million. As a welder who had had to buy his first torch secondhand, that still sounded pretty big to me. But if you're going to leave me with the Vicksburg and Longview properties, I said, you've got to leave me something to build. I just can't close up the plants and fire all my men there. Well, one thing they didn't want me building was earth-moving equipment. So at the end of negotiations that fill a large book with small print, we reached a deal. They would buy my plants in Peoria, Tacoa, and Rydalmere, Australia, along with the rights to all of my earth-moving machines from bulldozers to dump trucks. In turn, I could use my remaining factories to manufacture any and all kinds of machines that did not move dirt. The restriction on my building of earth-moving equipment was limited to five years. I'm sure they thought that at 70 I would have long retired from the battle, whereas what actually happened was that my five years of retirement from the earth-moving business were just what my mind needed to get rid of some rutted thinking and come up with some fresh ideas. Whatever their thinking was, the five years were up in 1958, and my 150-ton scrapers mounted on electric wheels are clear evidence that I have not retired from moving earth. I will say I never spent a more instructive five years. I know we septuagenarians are supposed to look back at our youth as our formative years, and I did form our company when I was a youth of 41, but actually my first 65 years gave me just the background and training I needed to start rolling. In 1953, with the launching of my four-point program in Liberia and faced with the need of inventing new machines to keep my factories operating, everything I had done in life began to add up. My formative years were just beginning. Liberia and its jungle was a challenge that stimulated a whole line of new land-clearing and logging machines, from the jungle crusher to a self-loading sawmill for handling logs that were just too big to be handled previously. In fact, some of those logs were so thick I had to build a double-deck sawmill. 
with the bottom blade slicing out the lower four feet of a plank and the synchronized upper blade slicing out the rest. Then there was my deep water port adjacent to my Vicksburg plant. Being temporarily out of the dirt moving business, I had time to think about that. Naturally, I thought in terms of welded structures, steel barges, floating docks and dry docks, offshore oil drilling rigs, floating cranes, and shallow draft vessels. The more I looked into it, the more room I saw for my welding methods and diesel-powered electrical systems. And there was my electric wheel that could be adapted to any form of heavy-duty off-road transportation. Recently, I read in a technical journal that, and I quote, Accurately predicting the relationships of soil and vehicle on a deformable terrain of the type encountered in cross-country locomotion is a complex matter due largely to the non-homogeneous structure of the soil and the random variation of elevation with forward motion. The problems involved in accurately predicting those relationships have successfully evaded analytical solution for many years. Unquote. And that's Daniel Clark in Research Trends, Volume 7, Number 1. I'm glad I didn't know that when I began concentrating on the production of transporters, log stackers, logging arches, and electric land and snow trains. I'm afraid that non-homogeneous soil structure might have scared me out if I had known what it was. And I know I would have been discouraged by something that has evaded analytical solution for many years. In 1953-2, I began my second big four-point program at the headwaters of the Amazon in Peru. It came about through a meeting with Cam Townsend, head of an unusual organization known as the Wycliffe Bible Translators. For many years, at considerable peril, as often from headhunters as bushmasters, jaguars, and poisonous insects, this dedicated group has been working in the jungles of Central and South America to translate in writing and preserve on phonograph records and tape all the various Indian languages. Then they translate the Bible into these languages and so carry the Bibles to the natives in their own tongues. Cam had heard of my Liberian project and was convinced the same program would work in the jungles of the Amazon on a broader basis. We still have to carry Christ to the jungle Indians, he said, but we have another job too. The eastern foothills of the Andes Mountains are being colonized by several hundred Peruvians. They have brought with them small schools and churches and law and order, but they need help. They need your machines and your program, Mr. Letourneau. It will take them 50 years with hoes and axes to do what you can do for them in a year. It was an enticing picture. Barney flew me down to Lima, and in a series of conferences with President Manuel Odria, a colonization program was outlined and approved. For the government, I would complete 31 miles of the Trans-Andean Highway linking the Amazonian slopes with the Pacific. For its part, the government would grant me 400,000 hectares of land, about a million acres, on the Pachatea River near the town of Pucallpa. The Pachatea, flowing into the Ucayali River, which in turn flows into the Amazon, is considered the head of navigation. Though I will say that until I designed my own shallow draft vessels, river traffic was extremely light. When I first flew over Turna Vista, as our colony is named, 
it was just a part of the solid jungle that stretches from the Andes to the mouth of the Amazon. Its gently rolling hills at an elevation of 800 feet above sea level looked like long rollers on a green sea, and the thought of tackling it even with my biggest machines was awesome. My jungle crusher could just roll in there and disappear without a trace. And the thought of getting my roller there in the first place was equally awesome. Our supply route was 4,650 miles long, from Vicksburg to the mouth of the Amazon, and then upriver across almost the width of South America, with the upper reaches filled with uncharted sandbars. Well, there are no big jobs, only small machines. So I designed some bigger machines, like my tree stinger for felling 150-foot trees in 20 seconds, roots and all. These trees, too thick to be felled with a tree saw and too valuable as timber to be smashed under the jungle crusher, were a problem until I designed my fast electric-wheeled stinger with an electrically-powered pusher boom. After that, all an operator had to do was roll up to the selected tree, elevate the boom to a good leverage point, 30 or 40 feet up the trunk, and push a button. Electric motors would then start forcing an extension of the boom forward with a pressure of a quarter of a million pounds, and that was it. Except that some of those Peruvian monsters seemed rooted in China, and then my stinger would be the one pushed back with all electric wheels churning. I soon found an answer to that. I attached a huge steel blade to the rear of the stinger, and with that blade socked deep into the ground, the stinger was anchored, and the tree had to go. The stinger is winning a lot of friends among contractors who must clear out trees and roots for new highways, and among land clearers not faced with dense growths requiring a jungle crusher. Another unique machine born of Peruvian necessity was my walking ship, the Lizzie Lorimer. This ship has four keels and four propellers for stability on the high seas, with the same four keels providing a wide distribution of weight to operate in water, as one skipper put it, no deeper than the dew. The fact that I'm proudest of is that it really doesn't need the dew for beaching or crossing sandbars. On each side amidship, I placed two long steel rams with broad steel feet at both ends. To go forward on dry land, the rear ends of the ram are lowered, and they heave and push forward exactly as would a man poling a boat. To back off of a beach or sandbar, the front end of the rams or kickers are lowered, and a reverse action takes place, even the propellers being reversed, not only to produce a reverse thrust, but to send a flow of water gushing forward to flush out the sand or mud in which the bow is grounded. Today, both projects in Liberia and Peru are flourishing. As a businessman, I can report that they have required some $3 million in support from the foundation, and more will be needed. At the same time, as a businessman familiar with development costs, I have never seen any projects more promising. In the short span of six years, we have proved that the jungle, unconquered for centuries, can be put to work, and its extravagant wastefulness turned into extravagant production. Yams, potatoes, rice, string beans, eggplant, black-eyed peas, cabbages, tomatoes, citrus fruits, rubber, coffee, cocoa, sugarcane, cotton, all grow to prodigal size. And to my wife's great pride, the Charbray cattle she selected for breeding on our Texas ranch have proved to be great beef producers in Peru. 
Today, on the banks of the Pachatia River, where my son Roy and a dozen assistants landed their machines at the jungle's edge in 1954, there is now a model village with electric power, running water, sanitation facilities, school, clinic, church, airport, commissary, and nearly 5,000 acres under cultivation or in pasturage. The permanent population has grown to more than 500, with other colonists standing by to take up land as fast as it is cleared. North American colonists as well as Peruvians are welcome if they are, in the terms of the contract, quote, acceptable to Letourneau and the Peruvian government. To me, that means anyone willing to work and anxious to raise the physical and spiritual standards of himself and his fellow colonists. In describing the colony to the International Development Advisory Board in Washington, D.C., I said it was pump-priming by private enterprise to the mutual advantages of the nation, the colonists, and the developer. Sending shiploads of food, livestock, and machinery is not the answer, I pointed out. They have plenty of land on which they can raise more food than we can on ours, so we're providing them with the machines and the training that will help them help themselves. That's what we call priming the pump. But once the well starts to flow, we see no need of more priming. The colonists will become self-supporting, and next they will be buying more machines to continue their progress. Already we've had representatives from many tropical countries who have flown in to study our program, and they too have expressed an interest in the machines that made it possible. And since I build those machines, you can see where I come in. They could see that all right, but I had to add, you get right down to it, and that's a hard way to sell machinery. A businessman could not afford to tie up millions of dollars for many years on a missionary project that might or might not work. But God can. And as his helper, I try to do his will, confident that he will help me be his businessman. It's that simple. And that simply is it working out, though I can't say we haven't been challenged every inch of the way. But where would be the fun of working and designing machines if it was all wrapped up for you in some master plan that could not fail? I've never had to face such a monotonous fate. Like the time I designed a sugarcane harvester for Hawaii, the only good of which came when Evelyn and I went to the islands and for once had time to enjoy a honeymoon. Nothing on that machine worked until I got there and straightened out some details. Then it worked fine, but it wouldn't harvest cane. I think it got the idea it was a sugar mill instead of a cane cutter because it turned out more juice than stalks. And there was my factory in England, aptly located on Stockton-on-the-Tees, after which Stockton, California was named. I went to England at the suggestion of Dr. Strathern to dedicate the new factory and join him in speaking before several church and businessmen's groups. To our complete astonishment, the simple tour he had outlined grew into a series of mass meetings at which the overflow audience, reached by loudspeakers, jammed traffic for blocks around. Whether in England or the more staid Scotland, the spiritual hunger was the same, and I was able to give my testimony of the Lord's power to thousands at a time. But in this case, my tour of Great Britain was exclusively on my Lord's side. 
The factory, built from scratch according to my latest ideas and equipped with the most modern machine tools and welding outfits, just couldn't seem to get into production. My methods, apparently, were too unorthodox. They had worked in Australia, but manager after manager, including a couple of my best men from the States, could only report disappointment. In the end, I had to sell everything and chalk up a half million loss to that expensive item called experience. Of course, costly experience, if it doesn't wipe you out, turns around and becomes invaluable. For instance, the more experience we got with electric wheels, the more uses we found for them. The Army needed a special vehicle to pick up the huge corporal missile and transport it from storage areas to launching sites, whether the launching sites be across deserts, the Arctic, or battlefield terrain. Right off, the electric wheels provided high-speed ground mobility for the giant guided missile. Our experience in building equipment to handle heavy logs made it a simple matter for us to design a loading device that would pick up the missile and carry it piggyback, softly cushioned by the big tires. Our experience with cranes, hoists, folding spar trees, and all kinds of rack and pinion gears enabled us to engineer a sensitive device that would grasp the missile securely, erect it over the launcher, and lower it into position for immediate firing. The same diesel motors that powered the generator for the wheels powered the generator for all the other motors needed for loading and for the preparations for launching. The Army wanted a mobile 150-foot revolving crane for extra heavy-duty work on beaches and off-road terrain. And again, the electric wheels and AC-DC electrical systems powered by diesel motors were the answer. It wanted a landing craft retriever to roll out into surf to pick up capsized landing craft and right them, or pick up stranded craft and carry them into deep water. Ten-foot electric wheels were the answer, with snorkels to let the motors breathe in deep water, along with a complicated array of my old electric cable winches. It wanted a snow train for work on the ice cap of Greenland, and while that one was more complicated because of its unusual task, it was not beyond our combined experiences. Recently, I was notified that the Joint Chiefs of Staff had picked me to receive the 10th annual award of the National Defense Transportation Association as the person whose, quote, achievement contributed most to the effectiveness of the transportation industry in support of national security. I was pretty flabbergasted, especially after I read the list of previous award winners. William Fairsey, for his strengthening of transportation defense during his leadership of the Association of American Railroads, Donald Russell for his contributions to the solution of emergency transportation problems. Donald Douglas for his continuing contribution to military and civil air transportation. Charles Weaver for the design and construction of the nuclear power plant for the submarine Nautilus. L.B. DeLong for the DeLong Dock, which made possible offshore radar islands. W.F. Gibbs, designer of the SS United States and Igor Sikorsky for his pioneering work in helicopter design. The electric wheel has revealed even more power than I thought it had when it can roll me into a company like that. I only hope Pinky, who fired me as the least promising newsboy in Duluth, finds out about it.
During all this time, I could not forget about the earth-moving business from which I had withdrawn for five years. They tell me time flies and that the older you get, the faster it flies. Well, I have the answer to that. My five years of withdrawal from the earth-moving business on which I built my career were the longest five years of my life, which maybe explains why I had time to get so much done. Not that I'm not a great believer in the power of youth. I'm so sold on the vitality of youth that all of my children have been moved into positions of responsibility as fast as they're ready. Louise and her husband, Gus Dick, were in charge of the Liberian Project for six years. Roy and his wife, Shirley, have been in charge of the Peruvian Project since its start. Son Richard and nephew Richard are vice presidents of the company. Ben heads the Vicksburg plant. Ted works in engineering with me in Longview. To those not familiar with our organization, such a family arrangement may look like nepotism. But there is a difference that I believe has considerable merit. Through my partnership with God and with 90% of the business owned by the foundation that is dedicated to His work, I will not be leaving wealth and power as an inheritance. I'll be leaving something better than that, a big job to do as businessmen for His greater glory. Evelyn and I find our greatest reward in the fact that our sons and daughter are carrying on that principle with our grandchildren. In 1958, my five years of exile from the earth-moving business dragged to a close, and I was like a kid looking forward to Christmas. I could hardly wait to plunge in. I was seething with ideas. I wanted to see that dirt move. True to my word, I hadn't built any earth movers, but all the restrictions in the world cannot stop a man from thinking, and I had had some mighty big thoughts. Any one of my competitors' big scrapers, based on my laughed-at turnipull and carry-all, could pick up a 40-ton load without trouble and a 50-ton load if it had a tractor pushing from behind. Now, it was my idea to replace the free-rolling but lifeless wheels under the scraper with hard-driving electric wheels, all sharing the same power as the two front wheels carrying the diesel-electric system. Boy, with that arrangement, with the front wheels pulling and the back wheels pushing, I'd be able to pick up 75 tons without slowing down. The day came when we were free to go into production. The steel mill began rolling out steel plate of various thicknesses and of various alloys. Torches began cutting the still hot plate into all shapes and sizes. As fast as it was cut, cranes and trucks rushed the parts to the factory where welders began pouring whole streams of molten metal into the jigged up seams. Other flame cutters were turning out thick rack gears 30 feet long, and still others were turning out pinion gears 10 feet in diameter. Reported plant superintendent Jim Mulpas, I feel like a kid gluing together a model from pre-cut parts. We almost did work that fast. We had our first prototype ready for the National Mining Exposition in San Francisco, and we stole the show. The machine had some bugs in it, but... There was one big one for which I alone was responsible. I had only built half the machine. It should pick up 150 tons of dirt, not a piddling 75. I went back to Longview and built the other half. That was not hard to do. Just add another bucket and bolt on more electric wheels. 
You see, with my first 75-ton prototype, the six drive wheels were just getting enough weight aboard to provide a comfortable amount of traction when the bucket was full and they had to quit pulling. By adding another 75-ton capacity bucket, they could use that traction to load the second bucket faster than they had loaded the first, while getting an additional boost as the rear wheels of the second bucket settled down to work under the weight of the incoming load. There was only one thing lacking in the newspaper reports and articles in the technical journals after the writers and photographers had covered my first public demonstration of the new 150-ton earth mover. No one called me crazy. I was even treated with respect, sometimes overwhelmingly so. Some called me a genius without once qualifying it by adding the adjective eccentric. Things like that can be upsetting. And they became more so a few months later when the technical journals began announcing the plans of other companies to produce their own versions of the electric wheel. Always before, my competitors had been from 10 to 20 years in picking up my revolutionary innovations. Now, all of a sudden, they were closing in fast on my electric wheel. Of course, I had built my first one a quarter of a century earlier, but with the introduction of my big earth mover, the scramble was on. Was the new crop of engineers thinking faster, or was I slowing down? Not liking that idea at all, I thought up a big one.